Good morning, church. Oh, hi. We're ready to go. I can feel it. It's happening. I was lied to, by the way. I was told that it was sunny in California. Um, It rained yesterday. I did not get to go disc golfing with the men. Uh, We were saddened, and I said, I just feel like I'm in Seattle. I don't know what's going on. You've all lied to me. Please repent, and we can get there at some point. Um, (laughs) I brought it. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. My name's Simon. I am uh, one of the pastors here, and I'm grateful to be here this morning. Um, a lot's been happening. A lot of change has been going on. We've been talking about as we've been starting and getting going, and um, we are in a new series. If this is your first time back in a little bit, we are in the, um, the parables is where we are. It's called Vignettes of Spiritual Truth, and we're going to ride this wave into the fall, and then we're going to start a study after that like in a full book of the Bible. So that's the plan, and last week we did, anyone Remember? Prodigal son, that's right. We did the prodigal son. So if you want to kind of turn to where you want to be, just go to um, Luke 18, and they can get going there as we kind of get into that spot. Now, if you're like me, and maybe you are, maybe you aren't, no one likes to say they're sorry. No one likes to admit they're wrong. Is that, is that a fair enough statement? Like, and when we do, it's like, oh, I... I guess I am wrong, so I probably should apologize. So the apologies go something like this. I'm so sorry that you were offended. I'm so sorry that you interpreted my words in that way. And what are we doing? We're just, you're wrong, I'm right. I did it right, you just heard me wrong. And so even when we try to apologize, we do this weird game where we don't like to admit there's any fault in us. And there's something about us as human beings where we like to be right. We like to know that we're doing things that are well or good in that way. And it doesn't, it's never changed over time. This is all the time. And so even this week, I had to apologize to my wife because we're moving into a new house. And if you know anything about that, moving is really hard and it will really test your marriage. So 23 years now, she's been able to put up with me and we've been able to get to that spot. So, but I had to apologize and I just like didn't want to do it. I didn't want to apologize. And I'm like, oh, I'm being grumpy. I'm sorry. And I'm like, I got to stop. That's it. That's all I had. But I had to do it, and I didn't like it. And, and I think that what we're seeing more and more is that we, we're watching the world, and sin has broken the world so much. As we see more and more sin, we see more and more wickedness, that there are people that want to be right and believe that everyone else is wrong. I mean, I was watching the news this week, and I'm sure a lot of you have as well. You look at Afghanistan. I don't care what side of the fence politically you're on. I, I just don't care. It's horrible. It's wicked. It's evil. And it is, it is because of sin that has come into this world that there are people that are being mistreated and marginalized and oppressed. And God hates that. But yet God is a God who pursues those sinners in such a way that he wants them to repent. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the heart of repentance. What does the heart look like in repentance? What does God yearn for his children, his sons and daughters? What posture does he want with them when they come to that forgiveness? Because we all need it. We all have to seek it out. And if we know what this looks like, we'll understand what it means to be righteous in God's eyes because of it. 
And that's where we are today. Uh, we have two groups. That, uh, a lot of times you'll see in the parables, there'll be two groups of people. And that's for contrast purpose. And so there'll be one person who's doing this in one way and then another person doing it in a different way. And then Jesus will use that contrast to show God's way and man's way. He does it all the time. That's a, a common theme that we'll see happen. And so the thing that we need to understand about these two groups of people is they both realize they need to have righteousness, that they are broken in some way and they need to be made right. The parable will show us that they go about it in different ways. And there's one way that God looks at and goes, yes. And there's one way that God looks at and goes, no, that's, that's wrong. And you may think you're doing the right things, but you're truly not. And if we're not careful, both parties can fall into the same problem. And we'll get there at the end because there's a paradox at the end that we need to address. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke 18. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it starts in verse 9 and it goes all the way to 14. Much shorter than last week. We covered a lot of ground last week. We're going to shorten it back a little bit. And this is what Jesus says. He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you for today and the opportunity to, to listen to you. I ask that maybe we would put aside the busyness of the week, maybe some of our preconceived notions of what we think it looks like to have a heart of repentance, that you would open our ears and our eyes to see truth, that you would press into us and convict us of areas where we need repentance, where maybe we are modeling one of the behaviors of the men in this parable, that you would cause us to run back to you. Holy Spirit, I do ask that if there are things that I have written down that are not from you that are going to be a distraction to the gospel, I ask that you would take those away. If there are things that I need to say to someone specifically here in this room that I don't know or I don't know where they are, I ask that you would give me the courage to trust you and to step out into faith and to communicate those things in such a way that they would hear your love, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, I pray all these things in your beautiful and amazing name. Amen. So I, I like these parables sometimes because sometimes Jesus is like, let me just tell you exactly what the problem is. Sometimes he'll go through a parable and you're like, I don't know what the problem is. And then the end, he kind of zings you. And this one is all up front, right? He tells us very clearly that um, he told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we know who he's talking to. We know who he's addressing. He's addressing those that think that they can earn their own salvation, that they can be right before God in their own power based upon their works 
and not God's. That's where he's at. And so what ended up happening is the byproduct of that doing works and, and falling in that spot was that they would treat others with contempt. That, I looked up that word this week and I was studying that word and it, it really has the, the idea of worthlessness. That they would look at another human being in a broken state and say, you are worthless. You are worth nothing. There is no value in who you are as a person because you don't adhere to the way that I have found my righteousness and so therefore I will judge you. And we see that there's questions that are being answered right off the bat, right? It's always answering questions. At the core of this, we say, the the question is, what do I have to do to have righteousness? That's kind of what's being talked about here, right? What do I need to do to be justified before God? That is to be made right in right standing with God. And with even within that, it kind of opens up even more. And it's telling us, based upon how we answer those questions, There's a way that we should treat others. And there's a way that we can engage others. And the problem will then be pride if we're not careful. So you've got all these layers going through. And I'm going to do my best to scratch the surface of what Jesus is talking about and get to the heart of the matter. But I want you to ask the question, who do I relate to in this parable? See, that's that's what we're always asking. Who, Who am I in this parable? Am I going to be the Pharisee? Am I going to be the tax collector? Who am I? Because if you can answer that question, that allows you to do business with God and to engage him. So I want to look at both characters, and I want to uh, kind of talk through that. So we're going to start with the Pharisee. Um, This is a group of individuals that Jesus addressed over and over and over again. It seems like anytime there's a problem, the word Pharisee or scribe is kind of floating around that text in some way, in some place. And he spoke out against them for most of his ministry. And a lot of them responded poorly to him. Now, there were those that responded very positively to him as well, but for the most part, they responded poorly. And you have to start asking the question, why? Why did they do that? Well, who were these men? What was their role? What did they do? Well, these men were the religious superstars of their day. They're the ones who understood God's word more than anybody else. They knew their scripture. They knew the laws that God commanded. He, they knew what God was requiring for worship of him, or at least so they thought. They would memorize full books of the Bible. And I'm not talking like, oh, I memorize, you know, Titus and Philemon, like the really short ones. They're like, you know, Old Testament books of the Bible. Like, I memorized Deuteronomy. Anyone, anyone here got that? I, I ain't got that. I'm like, out of all the books, that's the one you chose. So like they would memorize full books of the Bible. They knew God's word and they could, they could recite it. They could call it out and they could show where the air was with anybody else. They followed the law to the T. Some of them were known as doctors of the law. That would be a title that would be given to them at times. The the name Pharisee comes from an Aramaic word, which means to separate, divide, or distinguish. And the idea of that is that they would look at what was right and what was wrong and compared to God's word, and they would distinguish between what God would want. They would divide between what was good and what was wrong. And that's why they were called doctors of the law at times. Now, I'm going to say something that you may not like. I do that a lot. I may say something that's a little controversial. Do you ever feel like 
we give the Pharisees a harder time than we should? Someone's like, no, more hard time. Think about it. We do this primarily why? Well, Jesus addressed it a lot, didn't he? Jesus kind of pressed against them on a pretty regular basis. Jesus moved up against them in that way and called them out. The people that really should know what God would want were the ones that were kind of messing it all up. They were the ones that were a bit lost. But here's what I would say. If you really look at who the Pharisees were and what they wanted, you, you may have a different light in how you look at them. Let's go through a little bit of a list of, of who they are and what they wanted. They wanted to worship God. These are men that wanted to worship God. They value God's written word. They valued the scriptures. They valued reading through the scrolls. They would uh, toil over it to understand all the details of it. And then they memorized it just so they would always have it with them. They wanted to do what God said. They really wanted to be in line with God's will for their life. Not only that, they were so zealous, they wanted others to worship God as well. They were encouraging others, like, you need to worship God, you need to submit to God, you need to surrender to God. They, they wanted to keep the structure and the order in the church so it wasn't chaos, it wasn't out of control. Like, everything about their lives, they committed their lives to God and were passionate about God. Everything they did was molded around the fact that they wanted God's way in their life. Now, I don't know about you, but if you walk through that list, you might be like, well, that's someone that we would want at our church. Isn't that the kind of qualities that we're looking for individuals? As a matter of fact, like, Simon, I'm reading this list and, I, and I'm thinking, this seems like elder qualifications that are like, maybe this person should be an elder at our church. Because they had all the right ideas, but something went wrong. And you have to ask the question, if these people wanted to worship and love God so much, what happened? Um, anyone remember driving directions before GPS uh, MapQuest was my favorite, print it and just go. Or then there was like the Thomas guide. You're like, how do I flip to the next one? They're not, they're not succinct. There was this time and place where someone would just like give you directions. You make a left here, you make a right here. On the third right, you make a right there. And, you, and that was kind of how it went. And if you were driving to that person's place and you mixed up the right and the left, you would have a very different destination by the time you got there. And you're like, how did I get to this spot? My intent was to go here, but I ended up here. How did that happen? Well, you made a wrong turn. And what I want to submit is this is exactly what happened with the Pharisees. This is exactly what happened with the Israelites as they took a wrong turn pretty early on. And that led them down a path to where they were not even close to their goal, which was to worship and praise God with their life. And, and by the way, we're not much different, okay? We do this all the time in our lives. And so what I want to walk through is the idea that they believe that the law was made to save them. 
There was a point in the lives of these Pharisees where they got God's word, they got God's law, and they thought, this will save me. This will be the thing that will cure my problems of being unclean, of being sinful, of not being righteous. This will take care of the issue. The law was meant to diagnose, not to save. Now, I want to relate this in a way that maybe we can understand a little bit. Um, The law is like an MRI. And here's what I mean by that. So we go to doctors because we don't know what's wrong with us. So we go to doctors and they go, oh, mm, uh-huh, I see, uh-huh, yes. And they get right to your prescription. That's how that goes. But a lot of times they don't know what's wrong with you. And so they'll try their tests. They'll go through their things. And if they can't find out what's wrong, what do they do? Send you to get an MRI scan. And all that does is it puts you in this crazy small tube that's super loud and it makes a bunch of noise. And then 30 minutes later, they go, We have now seen every part of your body. And you're like, Every part? They're like, Every part. I'm like, I don't want that done. And so they know every part of your body. And what they do is they're looking for problems, imperfection, foreign things in your body that should not be there, something that is bleeding, swelling that's taking place. And that's meant to show what's going on to the doctor. Now, Let's say that I went and got an MRI. I go, I get my MRI, and it's bad news. They're like, Simon, you have cancer. Like, it's not good. It would be insanity for me to then schedule for the next six weeks to go and get an MRI every week and think that that was going to make me better. Think about that. You'd be like, that's, that's nuts. Well, what's the point of an MRI? To find out where the problem is. And then what happens? The doctor then sets up a surgery to come in with a knife and to cut out the cancer. And then to sew me back up. And then to give me chemo to treat the actual problem. This is, the, this is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was a diagnostic tool to show that we cannot be righteous on our own. We don't have the ability in ourselves. It is always showing God's wisdom and knowledge and holiness and perfection in contrast to broken, sinful people. Just like our lives, we need a master surgeon to come in and cut the sin out of our life. And his name is Yes, amen. Jesus is the master surgeon who comes in with a scalpel and cuts out our sin and makes it so we are not going to die. Pharisees truly believe that the law was meant to save them. Now, it's a reflection of God's holiness. It's a reflection of his wisdom. But at the the core of what the laws are about It's about being separate from other nations, but it's about trusting God's wisdom. Isn't this the problem all the way back in the garden? God said, trust me, and they didn't. This is where we fall, trust me with what I've called you to. Trust me for what I know is best for your life. Trust me and how you should live a way that brings God glory and brings you joy. That's the idea. Well, this is what Jesus is saying, that there is a problem. Because of sin, you are in need of a Savior. But what happened is that these men got really good at keeping the law, didn't they? Like, they kind of figured out, like, I I think I can kind of do it. 
And so they started to do all the things and they had their list. So look at, I'm doing it. I'm meeting God's perfect standard, which means that I'm perfect, which means that I'm holy, which means that I'm righteous, which means I'm kind of like God, which then developed what? A closeness and understanding of God? It grew into pride. And anyone who was not on that same level was to be looked down upon, to be judged, to be considered worthless. So the very thing that they were striving for to be righteous is the very thing that caused the unrighteousness in their life. Isn't that crazy? This, this idea of, of, of working to, to save themselves they thought that this was the way. And, and, and in light of this, doesn't it make sense why the Pharisee prays the way he does? If you think, if that's what you think the destination is, if that's what you think is going to save you, doesn't that now make sense? It's like, well, how could he pray that? Well, it kind of makes sense. His broken theology had led him to believe that this is where salvation and righteousness comes from. And so he's like, oh, then it makes sense that I would pray this way. The problem is that he's only self-justifying. He's not justified before God. We do this. We compare with other people all the time, don't we? Well, it makes me feel better. I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as that person. What do we do? We just peruse Facebook and Instagram. Like, I feel so much better about myself. It's great. They're all horrible and I'm all wonderful. It's a fantastic. Wicked tool. Anyway, the idea is that we do things like, well, I go to church, I pray, I tithe, I serve. Those are all great things, right? But it starts to make this idea develop in our head like, look, I, 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 I'm not getting drunk, I'm not sleeping around, I pray before meals uh, and bed both times. I really, I get after it. <laughs> look, I'm a good person, I'm a really good person. I'm saved. Wells up in you, doesn't it? Look at me. Look what I'm doing. Man, this is the danger. Like if all of this, if all of this boils down to morality, if all of this boils down to morality and being a good person, who's it really about then? If it's all about looking really good, then it's about you. What is this book about? That's right. It's not about us. It's about a God who sees us and God is the hero. He's the one who saves. He's the one that does the work. He's the one who sends his son. He's the one who dies in our place. It's not about us. We're a bit part that walks onto the screen. We're not the main character. Jesus is the main character. He's the reason why we have the book. He's the reason why God gets the glory. That's the big idea. If you look at the Pharisee and what he does, he says I five times in his two-sentence prayer. Five times. He is the focus and he is the highlight of his prayer and God is a sub-note. He even does more than's required. 
which is kind of crazy. If you look at the tithing and um, you look at all the things that are involved in the law, I'm not going to go into it. He does more above and beyond. I'm really racking up the righteous points and, you know, have, have a stock pool of them if I need them. Like if God's ways weren't good enough, they had to add to it. See what's going on? It's about them. Like I got my own. I, man, so much better than God's ways. I, got my, I do more. I give more. That's ridiculous. See, the, the gospel is really clear that we can't save ourselves. And somebody's like, well, I don't know about that, Simon. Let me just read some verses. Because let's, let's be honest. My opinion doesn't matter. God's word matters. And that's where we want to go. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some verses for you. Let's start in Ephesians. <clears throat> These are great verses when you talk to people. Uh, you, you, there's a lot of works-based faith kind of preachers that are out there. There's a lot of people that believe that if you can just earn your way to heaven. Um, there's different religions that believe that pretty, pretty staunchly. And these are great verses to have in your kind of your arsenal. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So is God opposed to good works? No. We do those after because we've been made new. And that's a byproduct of being saved. It's not how we get saved. You see the difference? It's subtle. Let's go to Titus. Titus 3, we're going to start in verse 4. I might have made a mistake there. We're actually going 4 through. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God does the work. We're renewed by the Holy Spirit. Mercy was poured out by Jesus Christ. You see what's happening? Like, the Trinity is highlighted, not us. He's doing the work. Let me give you another one. Maybe it's a little more pointed. Acts 13, 38 through 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. There is no hope in the law for salvation. The hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Now, here's something to understand. I just read three New Testament verses. What does that mean? It means that the church had to continually battle this idea of trying to earn God's favor by doing things. I encourage you today that you would know that it is not by your works that you are saved. It's by the blood of Christ that saves you. And we have to be called back to that over and over and over again. Now, this leads us to the contrast of the tax collector. Why does Jesus pick this guy? If you look, the tax collector, if you're a tax collector, man, I feel bad for you. You get a lot of, you get a lot of grief in the Bible. 
Like everyone would talk bad about the tax collectors. Even Jesus at times would be like, and the tax collectors. But they're always like lumped up with sinners and um, insurrectionists and prostitutes. You're like, and tax collectors. You're like, well, I do taxes. Oh my gosh, what do I do? (laughs) Is it bad to be a tax collector? We know that that's not true. You can be a tax collector. It's okay. As a matter of fact, when Jesus called tax collectors to repentance, he didn't say, and quit your job. He just said, image bear me appropriately. Show others my generosity. Show others my justice. Show others my kindness through how you do what you do. See how he did that? So he talks about this guy. Who were these men, these tax collectors, and what was it about? Well, these were men who collected money for the Roman Empire. And there's different ways that it worked, but one of the ways was that they would uh, pay Rome to be a tax collector. They'd kind of pay up front, okay? And then their job, and Rome's like, great, our taxes are being taken care of. And then they got to then collect the tax money. Now, We'll get to how they did that in a second. But you have to understand what's going on here. Who was oppressing the Jewish people at that time? Rome was. So what's happening in this moment is that a Jewish person, they would hire people from that region who knew what was going on, the areas, what was coming in and out, the ports, the different trails uh, where, where stuff would happen. They knew who to tax and how to tax them because they lived there. They were their people. The very people that were oppressing them were the ones that they were helping to fund oppress them. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Like, oh, I wish these Romans were gone. Hey, uh, how much money do you guys need? How can I hook you up with this? Like, that's what's going on in this moment. So they're turning their back on their very own people. They're removing themselves from it. And what they're doing is they're saying, you know what? I'm just gonna add to the problem. Because it makes me money. On top of that, the way they made their money was nefarious. They had to get that money back because they fronted the money, right? But they wanted to make a profit. So what they would do is they would decide how much they would overcharge those that were marginalized those that were already under heavy burdens, those that were having a hard time making money. And these were their people. These were their kin. These were their neighbors. These were probably people that they grew up with. And they saw them as a dollar sign. You know the the Bible in the Old Testament, what it says about those that marginalize and oppress and abuse their power? God does not look favorably upon that. And here it is within the own chosen people group. The Jewish people are doing it to themselves. They, they aren't even, it's like they don't even associate themselves with their people anymore. They've totally rejected it. It was all about dishonest gain. The, their care was for them and them alone. Not like any of us, that's just them. We would never do that. But whatever would make them money, whatever would promote them, whatever that would bring their status up was fair game. And they would step on or over anyone to do that. You know, it's funny. When we don't have power amongst ourselves to fight those powers, what do we do? We tweet it, we post it, and we talk out against it, don't we? So we use our, all we got is our words sometimes. And so we'll speak out against those people. What would happen? The whispers would start. The comments would start. See, the tax collectors were very isolated. You know why? Because no one wanted to be their friends. 
No one wanted to talk about their business. No one to talk about how much money they had because like, if I tell them, they might tax me even more because they can make up the rules as they go. There's no regulations in place to stop them from doing what they want to do. So they would whisper and they would look and they would know. You're not even one of us. You're taking advantage of us. And so who did the tax collectors hang out with? Other tax collectors. They're the only people they could hang out with because they're the only ones that would just like not talk about the issue, right? And so you've got this individual who knows what they're doing. They weren't blind to it. They didn't like, oh, wait, there's a law against that? I didn't know that. They knew what they were doing and everyone knew what they were doing. So this individual goes to the temple now, the temple was positioned in a very interesting way. So it was on a hill, and it was a huge structure, one of the biggest structures of that area. So I don't know if you've ever gone hiking or you're going towards a mountain or maybe um, in, in, Rain, you know, in Washington, we had Mount Rainier, and you would see it from just really far away. We'd be driving down the freeway, and you're like, there's a giant mountain that's two hours away, and it's still giant. And the closer you get to it, the, it, it feels like it's growing. It's not growing. You're just getting closer. And what's happening is you're realizing how big you are compared to that object. And as you would walk towards the temple, you have to go up the hill, which elevated it. It was a huge structure. And as you walk to it, you realize there is something special about this. This is the place where God would dwell. This is the place that God would forgive sins. This is the place where God would do business with people, where man and God would intersect and sins were forgiven. They would see the blood, they would smell the blood and, and the carcasses and the animals being burnt, and they would know that it takes serious work for sins to be forgiven, that, that death is involved in the forgiveness of sins. And as you walk closer to it, you know what happens? You feel the weight of your sins, of what you've done, of the things in your life that you've been participating in, in ways that you have rebelled against God by not trusting God. And as you get closer and closer, you find yourself in the shadow of that temple. Well, how does our tax collector respond to that? What does he do? He knows that he can't meet God's perfect standard. He's well past that. He's in a bad spot. He's in a hard place. He knows that he needs his sins forgiven, he knows that he doesn't deserve it by any stretch of the imagination. There is nothing redeeming about who he is as an individual to have his sins forgiven. And he's like, I can't do it. I can't meet the law. If these Pharisees are telling me the law is the way to get my sins forgiven, I'm never gonna get there. So what does he do? Like, he is overwhelmed with shame and guilt to the fact that says he stood far off and he had more access than most but he stood far off. I can't even be close to this God. Even being close makes me feel the guilt and shame of my sin. It says he, would, he couldn't even look up. You know that feeling when you are talking with somebody that you've hurt, that you've wronged, and you just look at the ground? Because you know if you look them in the eyes, the weight that you're feeling will just tenfold over because you realize that your actions, choices, words, and thoughts have hurt someone deeply. And in that moment, this is where the tax collector stood. I have hurt God. I have rebelled against God. So all he can do is beat his chest and cry out the one thing that he can do. 
And I love what he does. He just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He calls on God's mercy because that's all he can do. See, his sin wrecked him. But I don't feel like today our sin wrecks us. Do we understand what we're doing? We make light of it. We brush it across the table. It's okay. Our sin should crush us inside that there's a God who went to great lengths to save us through his son, dying on the cross for us, and yet we just nilly-willy walk into sin and think that it's gonna be okay and say, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. That's called cheap grace, which isn't grace. He saw his rebellion for what it was, rejection of God and pursuit of self. His way of life had yielded the poorest results possible when left to his own devices. Well, the ending is crazy. What's it say? It says the tax collector went home and was justified. Well, that's a word, church words. We want to make sure we understand those. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology would define justification as this. An instantaneous legal act by God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So that means that where's our righteousness come from? It comes from Jesus, that's right. Christ's righteousness belongs to us because of what he's done. He has given us his righteousness. It's not in our own doing. See, righteousness must come from somewhere. It can come from you. You can try. But at the end of the day, you're going to be held up to God's perfect standard, which is perfection. Or it can come from the one who is perfect. Everyone says, well, why is it such a big deal that Jesus never sinned? Because he was perfect. And if he was perfect, he meets God's perfect requirement. And if he gives us his righteousness, we now meet God's perfect requirement through the son of Jesus Christ and death of the cross. Do you see why it's important why he never said, well, Jesus sinned. No, he didn't. Because then it wouldn't have been perfect sacrifice. And then we couldn't have access to God. Like these are the things we have to make sure. These are minute details that people try to change and shift. We can't let them do that. This is important. He gives us his righteousness. You can throw away your broken, false righteousness by thinking that you can earn God's favor. Our actions are, it's the fruit of a changed heart. It's the byproduct. Now, we've called this the the heart of repentance is the name of this sermon. What is the heart of, of, of repentance? Well, from this, we could see it's a broken humility relying on the mercy and grace of God to forgive you. There's no room for pride and repentance because you can't save yourself. And this was the mistake the Pharisees made. This is why Jesus pressed into him. You'd realize it was loving that Jesus pressed into the Pharisees so often because he was trying to correct their bad theology. Why? So he could stick it to them? No, because he loved them. And he cared about them. And he wanted them saved as much as the tax collector. So that's the heart of our father. Sin puts us on a, on, a, on a level playing field. Now, I did say that there was a paradox, didn't I? I'm going to get to the paradox and I'm going to end with a passage and I'm gonna, we're going to call it good. The paradox is this. Some of you may be like, I identify with the tax collector. I'm the good guy in the story. 
And by doing that, you go, and that wicked Pharisee, that evil Pharisee, he's a horrible person. He's the worst. What did I just do? I just put myself in the seat of the Pharisee. Do you see the paradox? Like Jesus is, he's the master of crafting these little statements and ideas that are so deep and profound. It's, it's crazy. And he's like, and you too, tax collector, can try to boast in your humility. And as you boast in your humility, it becomes pride. Like it just, you, hey, I'm really humble. No, you're not, because you just bragged about it. Like that's the big idea. Like you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. And that's what he's saying is like, we have to be careful how we broach what the heart of, of this, uh, the heart of repentance is, is based out of a humility and understanding of who we are and who God is. And I thought, how can I end this, this sermon? How can I get to a place where I'm like, I'll share this personal story, I'll share that. I said, you know what? I'm not gonna. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do something a little bit different and I'm gonna leave it a little bit open-ended. I'm going to leave it a little bit more to where you can hear truth. And I want to go to just scripture. Uh, we had the men's uh, breakfast yesterday. It was great. Uh, first one I've ever been at. It was super, super fun. A bunch, of, a bunch of godly men there. As we're kind of going through scripture and talking about God's word, um, someone said, oh, what's one of your favorite uh, verses? And Alex, one of the elders next to me, said, oh, this is my favorite passage. I'm like, that's what we're preaching on tomorrow. How did you get my notes? Apparently, he has access to my files. I got to talk to someone in IT. Um, but here's what I want to do. I want to open up to Psalm 51. I don't think there's a better example of what the heart of repentance looks like and how we should broach God when it comes to our sins and our need for him than the fact that when David was called out by Nathan, the prophet, he had slept with someone else's wife. He had gotten her pregnant. He tried to cover it up by bringing the husband home. He was more righteous than David. So he had him killed and then took the wife for his own. Not a good friend. Like, if that's your friendship, like, that's my story. Let's talk. That's not a good story. But when he was called out by Nathan and realized what his sin was, this is the prayer that he gave to God. This is what he cried out to God. I want you to listen to things that we've talked about in this sermon. It says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in, in truth and in the inward being and you search me and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hispis and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my, trans- my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God's are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Do you see the heart of David? He was wrecked when his eyes were open to what he had done. And I love this. You will not delight in sacrifices. You won't delight in burnt offer. What does he want? A broken spirit, a contrite spirit, someone who understands the magnitude of their sins, realizes they can't save themselves, and needs what? The mercy of God to save them. I don't know your stories. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know what's been done to you. But I know this. The older I get, the more my sins come before me. And the more I realize I need Jesus. I want you to know that I pray for you on a regular basis. And I love you enough to tell you that that there is something in your life where you are in rebellion against God right now. He is calling you to repent. He is calling you to stop trying to save yourself through your own works, actions, or self-righteousness. But he is asking you to call on the name of Jesus to forgive your sins. And I would call you today, right now, in this moment, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what you have done or what you are doing, he will forgive you. He is faithful and just to forgive, as the Bible says. All we must do is do what? With the text, cry out for the mercy of God. That is what he's been called to do. We move into our, our time of worship. I want you to know that we're going to ask you to reflect, think as you pray, ask God to reveal to you. And as he reveals to you what's going on in your life, seek him out with a broken and contrite heart. Lay down your works and your abilities and trust in the work of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would, you would move amongst the people here right now and you would convict I ask that you would bring their iniquities, their sin before them. I ask that you would show them where they need to repent and come to you. I ask that you would show them the magnitude of their sin, that they would feel the weight of it. I feel we don't sit in the weight of our sin often enough. And as we feel that, Lord, let us realize that our piddly ways of trying to become righteous pale in comparison to what you've done through your son, Jesus, and that we would call to him We love you. We thank you for being after our hearts and pursuing us in such great ways. For all these things in your glorious and amazing name, amen.